Hello and welcome to the Wigtown Book Festival podcast. I'm your host, Peggy Hughes, and I hope that wherever this finds you, that you're safe, well, and as warm or as cool as the present weather allows. On today's podcast, we're getting behind the scenes with Publishers 404 Inc. and their forthcoming new publications, Inklings. This conversation features 404 Inc. founders Heather McDade and Laura Jones and Katie Goh, whose The End, Surviving the World Through Fictional Disasters, will be one of the Inklings titles. 404 Inc. launched with a smash in 2016. Their first book, a collection of essays entitled Nasty Women, was made possible by a crowdfunded campaign backed by Margaret Atwood, no less. They've brought Wigtown Festival stars Chris McQueer and Nadine Ayasha Jassat to our attention. Their authors have won Saltire Society First Book of the Year, Outstanding Literature Award at the Scottish Culture Awards, and 404 themselves have topped the List magazine's coveted Hot 100. Inklings returns to essays, eight little books with big ideas that have been centre stage of a crowdfunding campaign that set out to raise £7,000 and is currently on 23000 and rising. We hear more about where Inklings came from and author Katie Goh speaks here for the first time about her title, The End, Surviving the World Through Fictional Disasters. Why do we love apocalypse fiction and what does it tell us about how we imagine our place in history? What's it like writing about the end of the world at a time when our world has been so disrupted? We talk about these things and more. Here we are, 404 Inc. back with a, another enormous bang. It's like the good old days of nasty women, feels like to me, with this crowdfunding campaign for the amazing Inklings. Heather McDade, give us an inkling about Inklings. So basically, Inklings is big ideas that you can carry in your pocket. I think one of the things that Laura and I have been keen to do is we published a lot of shorter form like essays, and we thought we want a bit more than we can publish in an essay collection, but maybe something a bit shorter than a book. And we've had the idea for kind of a few years, and last year with everything winding down because of the pandemic Laura was actually the one who finally kind of came up with a more concrete plan for it and it just kind of grew from there we felt like this was the good time to actually kind of throw it out there and dive into something a bit deeper. Laura why did now feel like a good moment to flesh out the idea I suppose and to make it a reality? It makes me sound like I'm about to spin a yarn but I always start with it was July 2020 and we just released the one book that we were going to release that year. There was no sign of the pandemic ending and I was watching all of the sales of 404 Inc crashing down you know imagine a graph a gif of a graph just gradually going down and down so because of that I knew that our author's income was going down, so it was all a bit depressing, but this idea came into my head again, and I thought, maybe we could do something that's a bit smaller, a bit quicker, not the kind of big book that needs a lot of money going into it immediately, something that's small and nimble, something we can print cheaply in a small format, maybe just get it out directly to the people who regularly buy from us directly on our website, because bookshops were closed at the time. I thought, how do we just get to people directly with something that they'd be interested in? And a good chance of trying something different, I think, 404 always thrives when we try something a little bit different. As in typical 404 form, I sort of had this idea in a sort of small form. And then I said to Heather, what do you think? And she was like, great, let's do a crowdfunder. Let's give them ISBNs. Let's do this. Let's give them professional covers. Because I was all about 
let's just do it in-house. Let's do it, you know, small, quiet. And she was like, nope, we're going to do this big. So it took me a while to come around to it. Thank God, with the crowdfunder that launched a couple of weeks ago, it's done pretty well. So Done all right. We're going to come We're going to come to that. I, I sort of just got a little um, insight into the dynamic here. You're like, oh, let's just do, you know, quite small, quite quiet. And Heather's like, no, <laughs> let's, let's blow the doors off. So Heather, so talk us through that. How do you you know, take this, just generally the idea from just an idea to a process and a kind of set of steps to get you to where you are with it now. How did you, I mean, I think it was an open call, is that right, to kind of attract the authors that you're going to be working with? Yeah, so when we were talking about it, we had kind of the vague idea of we'd like to take a deep dive into a subject that might be personal to someone but can say something big. And it's kind of, when we were talking about it, we understood what we meant, but we're like, that could mean nothing to the general public. So we put an open call, effectively saying, if you could write one book, what would you write about? Was kind of the crux of that. And just hoping that people would understand what we were going for. And I think in our first round, we got about 300 book submissions or pitches submitted. And a lot of them, they got the kind of personal element and a lot of them got the kind of big idea element the pandemic was quite prevalent in a lot of the books that we were pitched but there was like a kind of sweet spot of books like Katie's of people who got the idea of exploring something that's of interest to them but that can kind of say something more broadly oh we had so many long phone calls trying to whittle it down I think our first shortlist was 40 books and we were like well this won't do so it was kind of a few rounds to get it down to the eight but I think what tends to have happened with 404 is we just kind of throw it out there and say we're looking for this and put a very vague brief and people just kind of get what we're after we've been really lucky in the kind of quality and also breadth of stuff that comes to us and the authors have all just been like a dream to work with as well it's just yeah I feel like we've been really lucky in attracting people who get what 404 is after even if sometimes we don't quite know what we're after until it's in front of us. I know exactly what you mean. It's quite a sort of fine science, isn't it? An, an open call or a brief. You, you don't know what you want until you see it. What is that magical? I mean, Heather just said it's the kind of, it's the personal, but then the more the more public or the bigger idea stuff. But Laura, what is it for you when you encounter a piece of writing and you know that it's something that's A, gonna, you know, kind of set your, you know, mind on fire, but also gonna be right for 404? What do you think it is for you? I wish I could put it down to a sentence uh, it's something again that me and Heather have been trying to figure out for years now and annoyingly it is just a case of we read it and we know when something really hits and we both go that's it the kind of common denominator in all the books is we've just been excited when we've read the pitch like it's one of those sometimes we've had projects or even in the magazine where we would one of us would talk the other one round or like kind of pitch the pitches that we liked but I think what we've found has been the most exciting stuff is we just read a pitch or a submission and both of us are just like yeah this is it if we're excited to read it then that's pretty much all we're after I think one of the things when 404 founded is we were like we're not going to publish to a schedule and we're not going to say oh we need to publish say six books a year and if there's a gap we need to fill it we're just very much like if we don't find a book that we are passionate about or find a book that excites us then we'd rather take the break and make sure that we're publishing stuff that we feel like we can do well. And that's why, well, there was other reasons as well. But in 2020, we only published one book, but we were fine only publishing one book because that was like the book. So yeah, I think for us, it's more important to find projects that we fully, we love ourselves. We don't want to publish something just because we can. So of these eight inklings, they have in fact passed the Jones McDade Venn diagram of excellence. I'm going to ask you, and we've of course got Katie Go with us as well, and we're going to hear a bit more about that specific title. But I wanted you to talk us through, I guess, seven of those titles, and then we'll let Katie talk about that one. 
so we have Love That Journey For Me by Emmy Garside, a look at uh, Schitt's Creek, the TV show, and about the kind of queer revolution that has happened in the last few years, uh, thanks to that, you know, the great re- representation of uh, gay relationships and LGBTQ plus uh, relationships and experiences in a small town. The author, she's done a PhD in... Um, the responses to the AIDS pandemic and yeah. the kind of evolution of theatre. Yeah, so she has a very unique kind of perspective on that, which is, is really interesting. And I think when we went into this, me and Heather secretly said, oh, we wish somebody will pitch a Shit's Creek. <laughs> Inkling, and then lo and behold, just like that. I wish it happened like that all the time. We we also have Flip the Script by Arusa Kreshi about women in hip hop in the UK, the women that we should know about that maybe we don't know about, and maybe the ones that we we do, and celebrating them even more. Cassie Ritchie is a fashion historian, and she's writing on his royal badness, which is a kind of deep dive into Prince's wardrobe, one item at a time. Um, across key pieces from his wardrobe. Rather than just focusing on the clothes, she's using that as a way to explore Prince as a cultural icon and what he's basically, his impact has been, um, how he defies like black masculinities, um, how he reflects his home culture, how he supports small businesses. So her work is she studies fashion and she's spoken across the world about it but her own personal research is specifically into prints and I was like that is a book that I want to read. We also have Liam Coneman who is writing The Appendix so he started a project where he was effectively started at the end of a book where he was collating an appendix of all the transphobia that he encountered just in life. He wasn't seeking it out, he wasn't looking into stories to see what people were saying. He was like I'll just track every time I see something just naturally going about my day but then it became too much for him and instead he decided to change that project into focusing on transmasculine joy instead of the transphobia that he's encountering so his book is kind of an account of the appendix and how that process started also what he learned through it and how he finds joy we were drawn to that as well because it was one of the things that Liam said is holding on to joy is something that's really difficult in general and he thinks that's an important thing to focus on because that often gets lost in the conversation um I'll pick up the next ones. We've got The New University by James Coe. He's reimagining a new university that's more for the public good, that's more um, civic and a personal institution. Uh, so more about giving back to community. So less about focusing on universities that run like businesses as they increasingly do. So um, so that's going to be a bit of a different one, but one that caught my attention just as much as all the other ones. And we also have Blind Spot by Maud Rowell. And she's writing a very personal account of living with sight loss, uh, as she has done for a good few years now. And it is a bit more of an explanation for, you know, able people who don't understand what it is, what it's like to live as a blind person. I think the stat that she gave us was that 2 million people, I think, in the UK live with sight loss. So this is something we a lot of us should know more about, including ourselves. We are absolutely learning as we work with Maud, which is really satisfying. The seventh one is, um, so Anne East is writing No Man's Land. So she is British born with Malaysian Chinese heritage, but she says she doesn't have any kind of tangible connection with her heritage she is in her heart and in her head and in all senses British but obviously she faces a lot of external perceptions that aren't true to her so she's kind of exploring what it is to live in this kind of cultural limbo between how you are and how you feel and your your actual truth and how people perceive you based on your look or your heritage or if you're not in touch with certain parts of your heritage and what that actually means. 
So that's seven of the eight. What a stunning range of different voices and perspectives and stories. Absolutely gorgeous. Katie, I'm going to bring you in at this point. Your book, The End, is one of the eight. Can you just give us the the sort of headlines, as it were? The End is about fictional disasters. So that could be sort of dystopian novels or movies about climate change or, you know, any sort of apocalyptic stories in fiction and about our wider cultural fascination with these stories and why they have persisted for so long. Um, I mean, if you think back to sort of, you know, the Bible, there's the story of revolution, which is there, and that has come the whole way through um, the Western canon up to right now with, you know, movies about the pandemic and things like that. So the book looks at why we're so fascinated with these, you know, something that you think we would not want to be interested in, which is sort of the end of the world, and what that tells us about, yeah, our current moment and our anxieties around our legacy as well. Tell us if you would get, where was this piece sitting with you when the Inklings Call came out, if you see what I mean? Was this a piece you'd already started to write or had written most of, a part of, or did you write with Inklings in mind? Yeah, so I wrote a feature around this for The Skinny at the start of 2020 that sort of explored my personal and as I was saying the wider cultural fascination with this sort of genre of fiction um, because it's something that I've always been interested in since I was really young and um, it's sort of been this thing that I've had throughout my life but yeah that that article sort of explored end of world stories um, about the end of one world and the beginning of another world even if those new worlds are sort of horrible um, because all these stories are ironically about they're not really about the end of the world because they're always told from the point of view of a survivor. So that article came out in 2020 and then a few months later, COVID-19 happened and that sort of changed uh, my perspective almost, off it almost. And, uh, you know, at the start of the pandemic, so many people became obsessed with movies and books about the pandemic and, you know, different fictional pandemics and I was one of them it was sort of this almost perverse fascination you know and I was wondering why do we want to watch movies about a pandemic when we're you know literally in the middle of one it was sort of exasperated this idea that I've always had so yeah I pitched it to 404 Inc for the Inkling series and they said yes so here we are and here we are on this podcast why has that always interested you do you think yeah I think that thinking back when I was younger this it's always sort of been there in my mind there was sort of different events that happened in my childhood that I think sort of led to this fascination and one of them was 2012 and the Mayan calendar ending and everyone sort of had this big fear that the end of the world was coming and they made you know that movie that you know arguably wasn't very good for like 2012 and you know it was this going to be the end of days and I remember I was quite young when that happened as a teenager in school and I remember being really worried about it actually even though I sort of was like oh it's not gonna happen it's just you know stupid doesn't even make sense but you know secretly I was really anxious about it and then whenever I was even younger than that I was really anxious about nuclear disaster whenever I sort of learned about that and I used to have this recurring nightmare when I was a kid that I was walking down a pavement but if I stepped on any of the cracks I would set off a nuclear disaster and the world would end so it kind of gives you an insight into my psychology but I think that this is something that sort of is cultural as well as just you know my own baggage about sort of guilt around our legacy and what we leave behind and our sort of self-destructive nature I think that nothing sort of captures that more than the climate crisis and our unwillingness to really do anything about it 
and yet we're all sort of aware of that's happening but we're all just kind of like oh well that's for you know people in 10 years time to worry about so yeah this has always been something that's been in my mind and I think it's sort of bubbled up recently with things like um, the pandemic obviously most recently but also yeah the climate crisis sort of social issues that have been going on and sort of just general political discourse I suppose. Really interested in what you said, well, all of what you said, but but certainly what you said about during the pandemic, some people have turned more to, to this sort of fiction or film, you know, about these topics. And some, I think some people have found it, you know, that they wanted escapism rather than to look the thing in the eye. How does it feel to have been, you know, kind of basically making your contribution to this kind of almost pandemic canon, if you like? I was thinking of how, for example, you know, um, Camus' Plague sold out, didn't it? And Maggie O'Farrell's Hamnet, you know, these books that people were just turning to. How does that feel? How is it been writing it during this moment as well? It's been very strange, as I'm sure you can imagine. I think that one thing that I should say is that this book isn't about COVID-19 specifically. You know, it's not, it doesn't say anything with authority about the moment we're in. I think that even though, you know, it does feature in the book and that context is important for me writing it, I think it would be quite foolish to try and, you know, say with great authority, you know, this is exactly what's happening right now in the public zeitgeist when we're still right bang in the middle of it. Instead, the book kind of, so it's divided into different sections and one of them looks at the pandemic and that does touch a lot on COVID-19, but another one looks at, as I was saying, the climate crisis and another looks at um, social revolutions in apocalypse fiction, um, which are, you know, all equally contemporary concerns. So yeah, it has been strange writing it. Um, especially I have to say this year when maybe the end of COVID-19 is almost in sight and we're sort of coming out of lockdown and it, you know it has been strangely quite cathartic to sort of yeah look at the canon of disaster fiction and I think that's actually why a lot of people have been turning to these things I mean I think it's more to do with psychology than it is you know escapism and wanting just to find something good to watch on TV I mean there's a lot of other stuff you could be watching than Contagion for example but it's really comforting to actually read about disasters you know real ones and fictional ones because you sort of see this history play out again and again where people think it's the end of the world and it isn't the end of the world and that's really you know comforting to see whenever you're right bang in the middle of a pandemic and I think also you know humans are really storytelling creatures and we love narrative and we love you know to give shape to something so when you're in the middle of a pandemic which is loose and there's no shape to it it's very comforting to sort of project a Hollywood structure onto your current moment and give it that sort of shape so even though it is it does have this sort of looming context of COVID on it. I think that, well, I hope that it's relevant beyond our current moment too. What do you think then that, that these, the, the, the sort of apocalypse narratives that you've mentioned, what do you think they do tell us about how we imagine our place in history? Yeah, as I was saying there, I think that the thing that's really struck me is I've been doing a lot of reading and re- like research for this book is that it sort of tells us that there's not really an end to anything um which is you know ironic because that's what the book's called but you know there have been apocalypses happen over and over and over again not only things like pandemics and plagues and huge you know disasters like that and mass extinction but also personal apocalypses and apocalypses in our communities i think that you know if anyone's ever lost you know a family member that feels as apocalyptic as COVID-19 does you know so I think that what this has really shown is that yeah I wanted to look at you know 
what this what our fascination with apocalypse narratives tells us about um you know our our nature as storytelling creatures and what it tells us about our culture generally but also what it tells us on the smaller level I think too yeah especially within different pockets of societies you know I think that there's this sort of (laughs) phrase that comes up a lot which is you know apocalypse stories are they tend to be stories about and by white people in pop culture and they're just saying that disaster movies are what if what happened to people of color happened to white people yeah I wanted to look at stories that are telling very specific kind of apocalypses yeah I wanted to look at you know the big popular ones but also ones that are you know about marginalized communities and what the apocalypse means to those groups of people too what would you could you could you mention a couple by name that are in there you say the big popular ones I know what you mean so I had a little laugh there because it's kind of like you know the big the sort of crowd-pleasing apocalypses but of course that's not what you mean you just mean the ones that we would sort of that probably have more of a starring role and not the ones that we don't hear about so often yeah I mean they are kind of the crowd-pleasing ones though so you know things like um the day after tomorrow which is um one that is you know an environmental disaster film that it's a very strange film I really like it but so it's like this big freeze comes and this scientist sort of figures it out and his son is in New York and this scientist has to like traipse across the country to go and rescue his son and kind of abandons his research to do so, which is, you know, bizarre. Um, so, you know, things like that and San Andres as well, which is stars The Rock and he is a firefighter. He flies around in a helicopter while California is destroyed by an earthquake. And those are, you know, really crowd-pleasing apocalypse movies. Um, you know, something that I kind of have been wrestling with is like, why are these sort of like blockbusters? Like, why is watching California be destroyed? It's like, why is that a selling point um, for a film? Um, and then other ones with, so with the pandemic, you know, like Contagion, which came out in, I think, 2011, 2012, which um, became really popular in 2020, whenever people saw a lot of parallels between the pandemic in that film and COVID-19. So yeah, there are some which are, you know, maybe more popular, but also I wanted to explore a lot of literature that tackles it as well, which is popular in, you know, the right crowd, but maybe isn't as big in terms of, you know, the general public. So The Parable of the Sower by Octavia Butler is one that it's a book that I read when I was a teenager, but I've come back and visited. And it's a really brilliant post-apocalyptic novel about a young black woman in California who has this gift for empathy where she can feel other people's pain it's sort of this you know you don't really know whether it's actually a supernatural literal gift that she has or if it's in her head Um, but that's a really interesting story because it looks at the apocalypse as sort of this communal experience rather than an individualistic one which is I find more common in the genre so it's this idea of fine family rather than biological family which yeah, apocalypse stories tend to be sort of this almost reconfirming of the nuclear biological family, if you think of things like A Quiet Place or even The Road, which is about father and son. So those are some of the ones that are cropping up in it. But yeah, there's there's quite a lot of different ones in there. This really makes me want to read your essay, Katie, um, which is lucky that I uh, have supported the crowdfunder campaign. So that book shall be mine. Um, I, I do want to hear more from Laura. You mentioned the crowdfunder campaign and how Heather introduced it as an idea and you, you, you've you gone for it and it's gone amazingly well. Can you just say a little bit about that 
about how just where it's got to and how people can be involved as well. Absolutely. Yeah, well, uh, as of recording, we pretty much just hit £23,000, considering we aimed to get, what's it, £7,000. That's very nice. I have to, you know, give kudos to Creative Scotland as this was part of a Creative Scotland uh, crowd matching initiative. But it's still open. It's open um, until the 19th of April. So yes, anybody can pop on there and you can back us by getting the whole the whole set or just getting half a bundle or just, just getting one. We have had some people who are popping on and they obviously want three. So they've been backing the <laughs> the one inkling three times, which is one way of doing it. But we will have them on our website. When the crowdfunder is over, we'll put them up on our website so people can pre-order them there as well. And for those that don't know, crowdfunding is basically, it's sort of, well, it's sort of funding things as a crowd, but you kind of, you're effectively in this case, you're buying the books in advance. It is hugely important to particularly the smaller publishers when obviously the biggest cost in in publishing is is the printing it's the upfront costs and when you have no idea what the the demand is going to be particularly with inklings we had no idea if this was a good idea or not so this is always a really good way to test that and thankfully the the crowd have said yes this seems to be a good idea heather i wonder what do you think the secret's been i mean i I mentioned at the very top of the top of the podcast just about um you know nasty women when you first set up 404 and you appeared on the scene and you had this astonishing crowdfunding campaign that was supported by you margaret atwood among many many others what's the secret do you think to a a crowdfunding campaign like this from our point of view we for one, we're like, we only crowdfund if we think it needs to be crowdfunded because crowdfunders on the face of them look quite easy of like, you're putting something out there and people give you money, but it's actually really difficult. And it's also quite high risk. And we don't ever want to put authors at a kind of awkward place where we launch their book for pre-orders and we need to hit a certain target and then we don't hit it because that's not fair to them. So I think we just kind of wait for the right project is the first one. And we're like, over I was gonna say meticulous but we're just like over the top planners like we planned every possible thing we drafted like every single tweet like a week in advance and I think the main thing is just kind of preparing and trying to make sure people care because I think the worst thing is if we posted on that Monday morning that inklings were available for pre-order and people were like okay cool and just like moved on with their day it's kind of just getting people excited I feel like I guess that's just their job as a publisher in general is to get people excited for our books but I think particularly for a crowdfunder we're very conscious of we want to make sure that when we're launching a crowdfunder it's kind of like peak engagement of like the first day that a crowdfunder is up is always the biggest day give or take um maybe the last one and so yeah I think a part of it as well is just kind of serendipity we've always been quite lucky I think it goes hand in hand with we prepare a lot and then there's just some extra kind of factor that kind of makes it a bit more stratospheric than we planned because as Laura said we hope to raise seven thousand pounds and we're like if we could raise that in three or four days that would be amazing but um it only took us four hours and I think even the best laid plans couldn't have prepared us for it to go that well so I think part of it is just like preparing as much as you can but just kind of crossing everything and hoping you just kind of catch people at the right moment but I think the other thing is we have only ever crowdfunded amazing books and amazing writers so we're also lucky that like the people we're working with they're just amazing obviously so it's just it's very easy to sell very talented people I think we'd have a lot tougher time selling ourselves that's why we like doing 404 we get to work with more talented people than us and just do all the background work to make that happen. And they, and they look beautiful as well, I want to say, the books I've seen. I know that they're, they're the draft kind of covers, you know, they might not look exactly like that, but the, the design is beautiful. Uh, yeah, we got Luke Bird um, involved for that, um, and he's done oh so many covers now, and he's he did uh, Convenience Store Woman, he's done Milkman, it's the Man Booker winner? 
he's he's a fantastic guy and he he got the concept pretty much immediately and he turned it over very quickly as well because we had when we went into this we weren't sure if we were going to be crowdfunding this and then when we got into as i mentioned the creative scotland crowdmatch initiative suddenly there was a date on it suddenly there was a date that we had to go public and so i had to go to the designer and go can you do all eight of them instead of just three because initially we said oh maybe you can just do these few just a brand and then throughout the year you can do all of them like nope all of them all at once please uh, and he, he turned it around. It was amazing. Couldn't be more chuffed with that. Wonderful. Coming to our close then, what happens next? So the crowdfunder runs until the 19th. So still time for people to support. But then when do they go into production? What's the, what's the sort of publication time frame then? Uh, so uh, we have the first one coming out, we hope, the end of June. Um, that will be the love that journey for me. And then we're going to aim for pretty much one a month. Some of them will be, um, there might be two a month. But basically they'll be publishing all the way up to the end of November. Publication dates always move around a little bit, especially during the pandemic, but we're pretty confident that it'll be quite pleasant for people who have who have backed it. So hopefully they'll have little books just dropping dropping on their doorsteps as surprises, like once a month or something like that. That's that's what we're aiming for. As Katie was explaining the book again, it's really nice to, to hear actually to hear it as opposed to reading a pitch. It's really nice to for me to then think, oh, I can't wait to learn from Katie why I love disaster films. Like, I, like I really, like, I want to have a sit-down session and have you tell me <laughs> these things. Like, why did I grow up loving The Day After Tomorrow? Like, why was I fast? I mean, it was probably Jake Gyllenhaal, to be honest. I, I definitely, I, I, I fancied him pre- pretty hard, but I love the theme, so... So even I can't, I can't wait to to read the full ready thing and, and get it out into the world. Yeah, I think as well because I'm not really a film person. I like only the last few years, few years did I start watching films. But um, in like March, April last year, I watched Contagion, and it's literally when we saw the pitch. Just because we deprived you of describing the book, I'm now just going to describe the book. But basically, like one of the things that we really liked about it was we got a lot of pandemic adjacent pitches, and we we're like, by the time this publishes, Touch Wood will be out of the pandemic. But um, I think by that point, people will be almost sick of hearing about it, and you don't want to talk about the pandemic again. Whereas when Katie's pitch came in, we were like, oh, this is really interesting because it's kind of a way of looking at pandemics and stuff and disasters more broadly, where this kind of sits next to it. But also the point she was hitting about us all turning to that kind of culture me and Laura both went oh we've done that and it never occurred to us that that was a thing and then once we actually started talking about it, we're like, oh yeah this is actually everyone we know seems to be doing this but none of us have actually like thought about it more broadly so I think yeah it's just and as well on a biased note Katie's an amazing writer so if you check out her Twitter I'm sure you will find she is an amazing writer so like when she pitched as well I was really excited because I am a fan of Katie's writing from the outside so having her do that for that subject is something we're really excited about. Aw, thanks. I can't think of a happier note to end on, really. Thank you to Katie and to Heather and to Laura. You can read more about Katie by following her on Twitter at johnny's underscore panic. Here's to 404 Inc. and their belief that publishing can be a little louder and a little more fun. You can read more about the other titles they've published and about Inklings and support their campaign at 404inc.com. That's all from us for now. Thank you so much for listening wherever you are. Until the next time, take very good care of yourselves. Goodbye for now.